Welcome to the Two Button Crew Podcast. This is episode 18. We'll be talking about The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening today for the Game Boy. No, and the Switch. Switch. <laughs> I'm Scott. And I'm Glenn. How are you doing, Glennis? I'm I'm don't don't call me that. <laughs> I got I gotta call you that. You're my favorite Glenn. I actually know more than one, but you're the best. Yeah. Well, I, I've I've known many Glens as well, uh, coming from a, a long line of Glens. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm doing well. Um, having a job is a good feeling. So. Yes, you've gone through many seasons of employment and unemployment and disemployment on the podcast. But uh, where did you land? Okay, so get this. I actually. Um, managed to land a job at um, the univer- local university, of, or sorry, not local, the, like the big university in my state, um, making educational games. Because apparently they have a department that makes educational games that are played in schools. So, yeah. Professional game developer, baby. Woohoo! Yes. I, I'm like seeing the little achievement popping up in the corner of the, my vision right now. <laughs> How much of what you've done on your day-to-day are things that you already knew how to do, and how much of are things that you've had to learn specifically for this job? Uh, I've had to learn a lot, but it's like learning stuff that I already kind of knew, but just more in depth, because I'd done it as an amateur, but not as a professional. And so um, a lot of what I've been doing actually is tool development. Hmm. So that's a thing... um, a lot of people don't realize about game development is that oftentimes you it's not just like oh you know here here's the program type the code into this and make a game it's like oh well we need a tool that can um, like what I'm one of the projects I worked on recently is we take have a tool that um, reads an Excel file a spreadsheet nice. and turns it into a configuration file that the game can read can read and then change game variables based off of yeah and so if you want to say um like the example because they have like a little example spreadsheet that you can um uh read in to see how it works Mm -hmm. the example is like spaceships so does it have lasers how many crew members does it have is it you know how much damage has it sustained what's its name stuff like that and the game can read that, and that's very common. Most games are nowadays are uh, what use what's known as data data driven development, where instead of like you know programming in C and compiling into the game all of the information that you're using, you actually um, just have like a bunch of files that the game reads from, and that tells it how to behave. That's interesting. I think I like that more. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason why we do it. <laughs> it's it's yeah, a lot easier. I... So it's. Because um, when when your project gets really big and you know like it tends to do towards completion, um, mm-hmm. any change to the code is going to take like a good. Um, we we work in Unity and it takes like twenty or thirty seconds when you need to compile something. That's really cool that you've been able to learn more specifics. I know that was something that we talked about when we were creating the graphic design on your resume when you were looking for jobs. Is Employers tend to ask all these very specific questions. Like when mm-hmm. I was interviewing for my first graphic design job, it was like, can you graphic design a a trade show 
tent. And I could have said no because I've never designed a trade show tent. However, I know graphic design and I know how to, to, to learn to design certain things. And really, it's the same process for whatever you want to make. You look up the specs and you upload your artwork and it goes on wherever they want to put it. So, yeah, it was that concept of like, you know, these programs, you might not know the specifics of how to do every single thing in the program. The, what the employer really just wants to know is that you are a good learner and that you can quickly Google or, or look in the help documents or something and find out how to do these different things, right? Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that was our Stave the Crew address. Thank you for listening. And Wait. <laughs> I feel like we're forgetting something. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. We were supposed to talk about uh, Link's Awakening for the Switch. <laughs> well, I have my own updates before oh, okay. we move on. So... Yeah, it's been interesting. Two Button Crew's really dialed down quite a bit. Uh, Glenn, you're doing a great job trying to get people onto the podcast, whether that's this main feed talking about games or the uh, tabletop game where we're playing mm-hmm. Zelda game over microphones, which is fun. But um, yeah, what I've been doing with my time is I've put out a few pieces of content for Two Button Crew. Like I, As a writer, I'm trying to become more opinionated and um because like anybody can react to the latest nintendo news but i think it takes a more talented personality to be able to create because remember your personality is a skill yeah you know this is this is like uh uh like uh skyrim or something where you can just dump points into your speech well okay actually public speaking is a skill but you you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> but to to create pieces like how gamestop betrayed game informer uh things that i'm passionate about and uh so speaking more, of, more like editorial content yeah that's where i would love to lean just because i think that the youtuber and the reaction space is getting so oversaturated um but i have actual history in the nintendo industry and i've been following this not just when you know since the switch has been out but way back anyway um and since i'm trying to lean more into being a writer overall Mm -hmm. uh, i am an author and i did my first author event recently that went really well i'm getting my book into more local stores so I'm writing a book with my dad right now, co-authoring a book with him, and then I'm also outlining uh, a book two to the fantasy novel that I made. So staying pretty busy with writing, and that's been awesome. And uh, as far as games, I uh, Game Informer uh, had those layoffs, but also their video guy just quit, and uh, it's going to be a, a little bit in the past by the time this episode is available. But he quit to create his own outlet with some of the people that got laid off so the video guy was basically like i can leave my job even though i didn't go get laid off and help these people who lost their jobs and keep them in the industry keep them in minneapolis minnesota and create something with them so it's called min max two two n's which stands for minneapolis and uh, they launched patreon and they're already making like several thousand dollars a month. So, so. that's kind of like what happened when game trailers shut down. A lot of the people really? from there went and started a, a group called Easy Allies. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. They, cool. Uh, they're they're friends with Easy Allies, and I think that the 
outlets probably have a lot of similarities, but uh, MinMax is just something that I want to support. So I'm a patron and um, I'm in their Discord and everything. So you'll see me there and lots of my efforts will probably be towards helping them. I get to work on a logo for them because I noticed that their branding was kind of lackluster and they even admitted as much. So I'm trying to work on something to spruce them up. Like, is this something where you you are going to try to just throw it out there and say, hey guys, I made you a logo, or did you like ask them, hey, do you want me to design a logo for you because your branding is like using Times New Roman? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your I'm logo already... is in Comic Sans. <laughs> I'm in uh, email talks with them already, so I think okay. we're in good shape. Nice, yeah. cool. So I'm happy for them, proud that they landed on their feet after taking that blow from GameStop, and uh, excited to see where it goes. So that's an active video game outlet for people to keep an eye out for. All right, and so, yeah, and we uh, we just wanted to, like, update y'all, because we, uh, you know, we, you haven't gotten to hear from us in a while, so, yeah. but, you know, now, now we're, we're really going to talk about Zelda. Yeah, Link's Awakening, which came out in September. Uh, yeah, gosh, has it? Yeah, it did. Sorry, it, it's it's been now. Now that I have a job, time moves differently. It does. Yes, yeah. much faster. I am assuming. Uh, I would say it's more like the days are long and the years are short, kind of thing. Oh yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I, this was my first time ever playing Link's Awakening. I'm assuming that you have more history with the game. Yeah, so I want to say the first time I played Link's Awakening, it's kind of similar to the Metroid 2. I think I mentioned this in our Samus Returns podcast. Um, Metroid 2 I like played like maybe five minutes of a long time ago when I was a little kid at like a relative's house or something. Um, I had a similar experience with Link's Awakening, um, where some friends came over and I got to play it for like 10-15 minutes uh, on their Game Boy, but um, my first actual like in-depth experience didn't come until years later when I got it, the DX version on the 3DS eShop. So, Through Ambassador Program? No, no, that was not an Ambassador thing, that was something... Uh, it's like $5, which, for the record, yeah, if you want to play this game, just spoilers on, you know, our discussion on the price, you can buy, you can get the original for 5 bucks still on the 3DS eShop. So, I think that's, that... that's going to be a question, is, is it worth the, uh, is it worth the extra money? I think that's come up on the podcast before, is me forgetting which games were included in the ambassador program but it was 10 nes virtual console games and 10 game boy advanced virtual console games so right no game boy color stuff i i just i think i'm confused because i might have actually bought it on my 3ds which would definitely be on brand for me purchasing games that i have no intention of ever getting around to playing um i realized that recently i was like Buying games and playing games have become separate hobbies for me and that's not good so i'm going back and i'm actually playing things now it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I've kind of put myself on a short leash when going to uh, uh, resale shops. Because, yeah. you know, you're walking along and you, you see, like, uh, 
a game you you've heard about for the N sixty four. It's like oh, Mischief Makers. <laughs> I've heard about this. It, it's by Treasure, and Treasure does really good work. I should tr- I should buy this, and yep. I, I still have not played it. And it's been like eight months. <laughs> so sorry if I missed it, but how far did you get with the game on three DS? Uh, so I I beat it all uh, played it all the way through. Okay. So this is my second time playing this game. Were you excited to get back into it as a game that you had already beaten? Uh, yeah, because most of my issues with the game were things that would be fixed in the Switch version because the Switch has, or hopefully would have been fixed, uh, because the Switch has, um, you know, more buttons and stuff. And that's like, that is the complaint that everyone has about the game is that, you know, because you're, the Game Boy only has two, um, face buttons if you're not including the start and uh, select buttons. You know, you you don't have that many buttons to interact with the game, and so you're constantly opening the menu and swapping out items. And sometimes you're like having to uh, put your sh- put your sword into um, storage and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. I think we might want to touch on that now that you've brought it up. Is I didn't feel like they fixed it all the way. I still had to go into the pause menu quite a bit, and I think that's because jump didn't have its dedicated assigned button like it does in breath of the wild it always had to be equipped with that feather item which was taking up half your item slots so i think that they could have spread out the buttons a bit more as far as what they did yeah i've heard that complaint too i wholeheartedly agree with it because um the first item you get in the game for those of you who haven't played it is an item called or the the first dungeon item. I, you may get an item before that. Yeah. Shovel first, or whatever. Yeah. The first item you get in a dungeon is uh, the rock's feather. That's rock, R-O-C, like the mythical bird. Um, and it allows you to jump. Uh, and I have a coworker. Actually, I, I guess technically he's my supervisor, who apparently has this hang-up about games that don't let you jump. <laughs> Which is, I find interesting, because I used to be like that when I was a little kid, because I, I, I've mentioned this in one of my articles, but um, I used to play pretty much exclusively platformers, so when I play something like Zelda and it didn't let me jump, it's like, what's wrong with this game? Yeah. Uh, maybe that's why I like Land Soccer for the Genesis so much. It's like Zelda, but you can jump. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so he, he was talking about how much he loves this game just because it lets you jump. <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, the Rock's Feather, you're going to have that equipped 90% of the time you play this game. Right. Um, it's one of those things, and that is, to the game's credit, all of your items basically stay relevant throughout the game, which is really mm-hmm. cool, because Zelda has been known not to be great about that. But at the same time, you know, the Rock's Feather probably, like, the, the shoulder buttons, the left bumper and the left trigger and the right bumper and the right trigger they do the same thing as each other yeah i know so you know right bumper is shield right bumper or right trigger is also shield stuff like that i remember um arlo have you ever watched arlo on youtube no um i think you like it It, it's family friendly he's pretty whimsical fella um well i do have a family but i what i'm hung up on with arlo is is that not a copyrighted character? Like, is that not just the Cookie Monster or something? Okay, so you know who I'm talking about. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't 
think Sesame Street owns the copyright um, to blue plush fabric. Right. So it's a little bit different design. Yeah, it, when it I see is. Because okay. Cookie Mouth has... Uh, cook, not Cookie Mouth. Sorry. Yeah, Cookie Mouth. Um, the, That's what the, I call Sometimes I do this thing where, like, I'm thinking about... I'm, I'm thinking two sentences ahead, and so uh-huh. my sentences get smushed together. What yeah. I was going to say is Cookie Monster, like, his head is much more of its by his mouth. Like, his, his oh. head's shaped more like a sock puppet. Okay. Arlo's got much rounder, more sculpted features. Um, <laughs> but he mentioned, you know, assigning the rock's feather to, like, the R button. Uh, one of the or the R or L buttons because that yeah. you're you're going to be using it the whole time, so it, it's basically the same thing as the Pegasus boots and the power bracelet. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, so yeah, yeah, I've played Zelda games where there's a lot more assignable buttons, like Skyward Sword. I think you can do all of the D-pad buttons, or maybe I'm thinking of Twilight no, Princess. Um, that might be Twilight Princess. Yeah. Twilight. Skyward Sword, you actually can only have one button selected, or mm-hmm. one item selected at a time. But um, they you had a open cool, a fast, circle yeah. system. It had a it had a really cool circle menu that made swapping them out super quick. That's what uh, Savina and I call the cool, fast, circle system, and that's from our honest E3 direct video. Mm-hmm. But we get to call that that in every game now. So, all right, should we hit on the rest of the quality of life improvements <clears throat> since we're in that vein, or should we circle back to it? Uh, let, let's circle back around to it. Okay. All right, Glenn, tell us about the premise. Because I'm not the story guy, but I think that you are. Okay, so the premise of this game is kind of infamous because it's it's one of the Stranger Zelda games. What happens is um, Link is sailing around. He's gone on a, a journey to train or self-discovery or something after defeating... Ganon, and this is the uh, the link from uh, Link to the uh, to the past. So, this is the second Zelda sequel. I guess Zelda Two was the first one, but you know, can't be Link from Link to the Past because his hair's a different color. Well, not in the official artwork, it's not. <laughs> oh, okay. But um, yeah, in in the sprite, yes, Link to the Past, Link's hair was pink, and the sprite in the game uh the original game had black hair so you know make that what you will (laughs) um he's just going through his emo phase he went through his like yeah weird glittery i don't know furry i I don't know (laughs) what what was up with the pink hair like (laughs) i've heard people say it was like memory constraints or something but i've never been able to find a definitive answer yeah i think simian and i dove deep on the research for that on one episode and it is vague but the the best answer the one that you can sleep the easiest with is that it was some sort of memory constraint like you said yeah which i find weird because typically the the palette information for your main character is one of the things you're going to prioritize i know so uh it's the link from links away link to the past yeah well, of course, the, he's also the link from Link's Awakening. But <laughs> uh, so he's sailing around. He gets in a storm and he crashes and washes a, uh, washes up on an island that has a giant egg up on a, a mountain. And he's told that to escape the island, 
um, he has to uh, wake up the windfish, which slumbers within the egg. Um, and this game is, like I mentioned before, it's, it's very strange, because um, it has a lot of surreal elements to it. Uh, and that kind of starts to make sense as you get into the story. I'm not sure how much I want to spoil. Um, though, to be fair, if you've heard anything about this game, you know what the twist is. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's like talking animals and um, there's like a bunch of Mario characters. You know, it's, I've heard people say that it it's almost feels like it's a parody of a Zelda game. Yeah. So, and I don't know about you, but I actually really like that because it, it makes this game very distinct. It has kind of a um, kind of a cartoon vibe to it, um, with all the to- talking animals and like kind of the, the weird, quirky, offbeat humor of um, everything that goes on. Yeah, I'm with you, and it's interesting that Nintendo chose to revisit this game for a remake especially after Breath of the Wild, because they with Breath of the Wild, the theme of development was break all of the... What was the word? Um, breaking okay. convention? Yeah, break all of the conventions. And this game follows the Zelda formula very closely for gameplay, but it breaks all of the story conventions. So maybe at Nintendo they're just getting tired of the Zelda formula. I mean, I can understand that. Honestly, I... Pr- I kind of prefer, for the most part, I kind of prefer the Zelda games where it's not about Ganon, because Ganon's just... I think after the Wind Waker, they really explore like, did as in-depth of a character study as they could with him. Yeah. Um, because, you know, by the end of it, it's just sort of like, oh, and by the way, the villain's Ganon. You know, in like the last quarter of the games, <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. you know, like with Twilight Princess spoilers, I guess. So, <laughs> I mean, it can he they use like the Twilight Princess design in Smash Brothers for a long time. I'm not even sure if it counts as spoilers once they do that. Yeah. But yeah, so it. I, I really like that. Um, one of the things about the game story that I also appreciate is this is the first time a Zelda story starts to feel really personal. Um, I, I've mentioned this before, but I'm not a huge fan of Save the World plots or you know the high epic adventures because mm-hmm. um, you know of course you want to save the world. It it just feels like it feels hollow. It feels cheap because. Of course you don't want to see the world and everyone in it die. Or at least I hope you don't. If, if, if you do, <laughs> then you know maybe maybe talk to someone about that because it, it sounds like you're dealing with some stuff. But, yeah, maybe maybe DC will make a movie about you. <laughs> um, don't, don't encourage it, Scott. <laughs> we have enough people who, who are in that mindset already. Good point. Uh... Yeah, I, I prefer stories that have like a much smaller scope, and you know, instead of um, so, you know something kind of universal like saving the world, it like the stakes are far more personal to the the protagonist. So here, it's not oh, I need to save the world from Ganon because Destiny says so, and I don't really have a choice in this. Uh, it's oh, 
I just, I, I want to go home. I want to get off this island. I want to go back to Hyrule and, you know, do whatever it is that Link was planning to do when he got back to Hyrule. Um, I, I think that's a that's far more engaging and far more, um, you know, it's a lot easier to put yourself in that uh, position. Yeah. But, you know, even more than that, this is one of the first Zelda games that actually has, like, really strong characters. Like, because... Does Zelda have a personality in Link's uh, Link to the Past? Like she was kind of in and out of the plot pretty quickly. You have Saraskala, no. who was—I think I'm pronouncing that correctly—who um, was basically just, um, you know, a, a hint, you know, walking hint. Well, actually, I, I don't think we ever saw him <laughs> walk. So he's—he's he's just a sitting hint. Yeah. Um, and you know, Link never has any personality. Like the, I, I think the most um, pathos you get in that game is Link's uncle dying. Hmm. Yeah. Which is right at the beginning of the game. Get it out of the way, and then no more personality. Yeah. In this game, you know, you you have like this this kind of this sort of hinted at romance between uh, Link and Marin. The, the girl he meets uh, on the island, and a bunch of the other characters have um, little moments. You know, it's, it's a Game Boy game, so it's, it's nothing much, um, but it, it, does, it does get you very invested in this world. Yeah, so. I was actually surprised at, that they included as many cinematics as they did. Yeah, and that also leads into this is prob- this is where Zelda games really started to get linear and story focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, because I'm pretty sure Link to the Past, um, I, it's hard for me to keep the names separate in my head. <laughs> Link to the Past, uh, like, once you get to the Dark World, I think you can tackle the dungeons in any order you want. Um, they do give you a suggested order by numbering them, mm. but you, I, I'm, from what I've heard, uh, I'm not an expert at that game, I've only beaten it once. Um, but from what I've heard, you can tackle them in any order you want. I'm also not an expert with that game. Beat it once. I'm in the same boat as you, but the original Legend of Zelda was definitely open world. The first open world game. This is the opposite. So the gameplay in Link's Awakening is very much linear. Mm -hmm. And one of the best ways that I could describe it is like a maze for a rat with cheese at the one of the destinations for it it's like that linear it's you've got walls on both sides and you're trying to see which turns you can make and then you meet some dead ends and you go try to find another way through the maze i actually built built one of those mazes for my rat cheddar back in the day and uh he liked it a lot he ran through there got the cheese did it so many times until he got too fat that he got stuck in the walls (laughs) (laughs) so we had to pry him out of there and that was the last time he ever got to use the maze that's that's classic Um, I caught you off guard with that one his name was Cheddar by the way very creative Um, I mean I'd probably go with something like Provolone but (laughs) Cheddar is I don't know. I don't like cheddar cheese that much unless you're using it as an ingredient in a dish. Yeah. It's one of those things that I, 
like most cheeses I wouldn't eat on their own. They're, I, I see cheese more as an ingredient, but that's completely off off topic. Um, I, I think most people would agree with you. I don't just see a lot of cheese munchers out there. But cheese platters are a thing. Whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the it, it's very linear. And one of the things that they do is there are a lot of set pieces. This is also the first Zelda game where it's like, oh, to get to this dungeon, you have to do this thing and then this thing and then this thing. Uh, you know, you, ha- you have to go rescue this woman's dog? It's a weird-looking dog. Reminds me of something else, but yeah, yeah. You, you have to go rescue this woman's dog, or you have to uh, take Marin to go sing for a walrus, and it sounds like I'm making this stuff up, but I'm not. Yeah. So you're you're doing all you know each each dungeon has kind of an arc to it, which I personally I like that. Um, what do you mean the dungeons have an arc to them? Hmm? What do you well, mean the dungeon? Getting to the dungeon itself is a task. It's not just yeah. about walking through the overworld. It's you know you, you have to complete a certain uh, set of challenges. That's how Skyward Sword was too, and I like it when they do that. Yeah, I, I do too. But the problem is when you do something like that, it does make it fairly linear. I think Link uh, Link Between Worlds actually did that, despite its nonlinearity. So I guess it's not inherently. <sighs> It's like, on what scale do you want to consider it linear? Because you can do, mm-hmm. do it in such a way where it's like, yes, getting to the dungeon is linear. And heck, even um, Breath of the Wild had to, to extent. You know, you had to do the thing with Sidon or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, so you can do it in a, in a scalable way so it's non-linear. But, you know, once you get to that dungeon, you're like, this is the dungeon I want to do. It basically is linear unless you decide halfway through, nah, I'm going to go do a different dungeon. In which case, that I, why would you do that? Because that feels it, like quitting in the middle of something feels very unfulfilling. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and one thing that changed from this game, Game Boy to Switch, was that the overworld used to be screen by screen mm-hmm. scrolling. And this is continuous, like one of the newer. It's kind of like the Animal Crossing series that made that transition as well from uh, game, GameCube to DS. I, I want to know, because uh, the only Animal Crossing I've played is the GameCube one. I, I did not realize that they, they made that change. Um, that's cool. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this, because I think in most cases, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a positive change, mm-hmm. because it makes the overworld feel far more continuous and a little bit less tedious to travel, because you're not constantly having the screen stop and scroll over. And it yeah. was a fairly quick transition but it still kind of was it still was disruptive on like kind of a subconscious level but the problem i have with is that when you're in towns you can walk to the edge of town and see like moblins wandering around the wilds and then they kind of like turn and go oh wait links over on the other side of those trees and they'll start running towards you they can't reach (laughs) you of course but you know they start running towards you and it's just like well that kind of ruins the whole town aesthetic, you know, because the idea of a town in an in a adventure game like this is that you can't be harmed uh, in there. And it, it's a safe, you know, it's a safe place where there, there are no monsters, except, you know, the instances where they do put monsters in there. But then, that you know, that's, like, supposed to kind of catch you off guard. Yeah. So, I don't... I don't know. So, it, it's one of those things where there, there's good and bad to that. Mm-hmm. Um, decision, but 
while we're on the subject of navigation, so I I have kind of a pet peeve about this game, and it's not the Switch version. It, it's well, the Switch version made it apparent. Okay. But it was something that was always an issue with the game. It's just I didn't realize this was a core issue with the game until the Switch version, and it's that navigating the overworld is a pain. Yeah. Um. I like the fact that the, the, the overworld, I like it because it's fairly condensed. It's fairly, um, there's a lot going on in every place, despite the fact that it's not big. So you have this small place that's very, very dense in detail, uh, which is how I kind of prefer uh, overworlds, um, you know, so yeah, another knock. Insert obligatory Breath of the Wild criticism here. Uh, but... I don't like the way this overworld is designed because it's a lot of times where it's like, oh, you want to get onto the other side of this river. And, you know, if you, like at some point you'll probably get an item that lets you just zip across. But, you know, for like half the game, it's like you want to get to the other side of the river? Well, you need to go down into this cave and navigate this labyrinth and push these blocks. Yeah. And then you'll find your, you know, after like a, a three-minute detour, you'll find yourself on the other side of the river. And I don't remember that being a thing in other Zelda games. Like, it, that seems very exclusive to this game in particular. I think so. I think that when it used to be screen by screen, you would get onto a screen, be squinting at it on your little Game Boy, and it would be a puzzle. Every screen would be a puzzle. And now, going through, it just feels like, even though it's scrolling smoothly, things are still stopping you every few seconds. Yeah, maybe that's it. Um, I, I think the reason I didn't notice it before was because I was opening the menu every five seconds. And <laughs> I, I, that was like, oh, it's the fact that I have to open the menu every five seconds. Yeah. Um, but then, once you get rid of that, for the most part, again, you're you're still opening the menu a lot because of the rock's feather thing. Yep. Um, once you remove that element, it just makes it, you realize that there is a fundamental flaw with the way this world is laid out. Um, mm -hmm. Probably the worst aspect of it was trying to climb the mountain to go to, I want to say it was Dungeon 7, Eagle's Tower. Um, yep. Eagle's Tower, I kind of found that painful because... You know, I would get up there and then realize, oh, hey, you know, there's like a heart piece or something if I jump off the mountain at this point or whatever, or you found a shortcut down. And so it's like, oh, gosh, now I have to climb that whole mountain all over again. Apparently, yeah. there's a warp point somewhere up there that I missed, but it's pretty close to the tower itself. So I don't think it would have been much help. Yeah, I think I did the same thing with the heart piece. Yeah, and it's just one of those things where it. It, it does kind of grate on your nerves after a while. Yep. I do, in general, appreciate linear, linear progression over open world, or I just don't like feeling confused about where I need to go next and what I need to do next, which is something that happens to me a lot in Zelda games. So I didn't necessarily mind that this was like a smaller scale or a step-by-step -step kind of game. I liked that there was a hint shack, um, overall, I still got stuck in Link's Awakening quite a bit, though, yeah. um, despite all that. Some of the hints weren't very helpful. Like, Well, did you... You knew about, like, the little journal system, because that's another really neat uh, improvement yes. in this game, where you can, like, go back and read every plot-important conversation. Yeah, that was really great. 
just some of them still aren't helpful. Like the hint guy in the phone booth told me, you're looking for an angler key. How much more obvious can I make it? So I thought, okay, if it's so obvious that I'm looking for an angler key, I saw that I could go fishing up north. Maybe I'm supposed to fish and I'll catch the key on my fishing pole. That was not it at all. There was actually no helpful hint for me to get the actual angler key. Mm. So I resorted to IGN's walkthrough quite a bit for Link's Awakening, which was written by Casey DeFridas, and she did a good job, and she made it like a first-person storytelling from Link's perspective. So that oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's, that, that's, yeah, I, I think Nintendo Power did something similar for the official Ocarina of Time walk through it was like uh written like a novel or something nice so i I, there was that's that's really cool when people do stuff like that absolutely there's also some just oblique things in the gameplay that were hard to figure out like uh, a door that can be broken by throwing a pot at it that's not something you would expect in a 2d zelda game because that's never happened before yeah Uh, and that that it will go down as one of the worst puzzles i've ever had to deal with yeah, because um, and let me tell you something. It was worse in the original, because in the original mm-hmm. the pot the door didn't have that pot design on it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it was just a door, and the th- no, and it was no. Actually, it was even worse than that, um, because when you walk in the Switch version, when you walk into the room, you see a door that has kind of this vague pot like, um, uh, jar like pattern on it. Yep. And if you look at it, it's like, oh, that looks sort of like a pot. Maybe I need to do something with the pots in this room. Um, in the original, you walked into the room and you took like four or five steps into it, and then the door slammed shut. Yeah. And there was no <laughs> pattern on it. And right. you you just had to stop and think, okay, maybe I stepped on a floor tile that yep. did something, or maybe it's timed. And like I spent like two or three hours on that stupid <laughs> thing. Um, and and of course so I looked it up and it's like pot. oh it's simple you just pick up a pot and throw it at the door and it's just like well that's before, never happened before or since in the Zelda game that's, I know before who, you who try that, that before you resort to that if you can even possibly conceive of that in your mind it, you're going to break every pot in the room just wondering if there's a switch under it or something inside yeah. of it yeah it's bad it, There's also boss fights that you don't know how to damage them because they give you no visual indication or hint at all what they're weak to. And the worst is when it's a spin attack. Yeah. That's also something that's not in Zelda past or present, so you're not going to think of it. But uh, despite those criticisms, for the most part, I do enjoy my time in this game. And I think that almost all of the dungeon puzzles are good. I admit that towards the end, I just kind of gave up on the more sprawling ones with multiple levels and uh, dropping through holes and throwing weighted balls down different levels in the dungeon and stuff like that. So I, I again, leaned on the walkthrough because it's just, I don't personally enjoy the feeling of wasting a lot of time doing the wrong solutions to find the right solutions. Yeah, and in the later dungeons, the navigation problem I mentioned earlier becomes very apparent. There's one dungeon that um, you can actually walk outside halfway through it, uh, the, yeah. the final dungeon in the game, and there's a warp point on the area you walk out. And I realized they put that there so that you could warp to the halfway point in the dungeon. 
Yeah. If you just walk out, like you can use the, um, you get a song that warps you to the entrance of a dungeon, so you can walk walk out, then use that song again to warp to the warp because it does different things on the overworld. Warp to the warp point and then walk back into the halfway point of the dungeon. And it's like, well, when you need to put a warp point that's only function is to help you navigate a dungeon more easily, I think you need to reconsider your dungeon layout. Uh, because yeah. it, yeah, it, it got really tedious. Did you use a walkthrough or did you just rely on your memory or uh, did you it was, brute it, force this? I used a walkthrough one time for the final boss because the final boss, he mentioned the spin attack. That's... Yeah, the final boss, one of its phases you can only hurt with a spin attack, or the Pegasus boots. Okay. Interesting. And I think also, like, the first stage of that as well, because I forgot that you had, like, one of your items, you had to use a very specific item to damage it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense, because I've never had to use that item before. Any other... So, yeah, it, it can be a little obtuse at times. They chose to keep the gameplay... One to one recreation of what was on Game Boy, which was an interesting choice. They could have relieved a lot of these criticisms if they chose to, but yeah. you could actually beat the Switch version with a Game Boy walkthrough. So that that was a design choice that they made. Although they did do some other quality of life improvements yeah. as far as the menus and the controls, which we mentioned. Uh, what are some other ways that Nintendo improved this title? Well, um, originally you couldn't get. Um all of the the hearts, uh, or you couldn't get twenty uh, hearts in the game. I think it was the max was like fourteen or sixteen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they expanded the number of hearts you can get, and they added a new item called fairy bottles, which don't work like bottles and fairies do in previous games. It's more like a potion. Yeah. Because they don't automatically. Um, you don't automatically use them if you if you die, um, but there is an item that does that for you. Keep that in mind. Um, there is an item that will do that for you that doesn't take up an inventory slot. But yeah, so you can now yeah, store fairies for later. I would have liked a heads up on fairies not automatically raising me from the dead. And that actually makes the game significantly easier. So I was able to beat the game without uh, dying, which is necessary to get like a, a special secret after credits thing really yeah so um i did not do that when i played the the game boy original i've heard people say oh links links awakening is really really easy so you're not gonna have any trouble with that and it's like no like the game boy game it, it's one of those games where you're you're going around and you get hit by something it's just sort of like yeah i don't know if i could have avoided that Yep. It's just like you're gonna have to tank tank some damage. Um, you got the boomerang, right? Yeah, I did. Super helpful. That's an optional weapon. So if you haven't played this game yet, try to make sure you get the boomerang. Yeah, and the boomerang is basically like it. I think it does the same amount of damage as the bow and arrow, which is weird because normally the boomerang only does damage to small enemies. Yeah, no, it's very very helpful for beating. A lot of the harder enemies, you can beat, You can hit switches from a distance as well. And then you can also kill enemies that you can't really kill otherwise, and they often give you fairies. So very, very nice. Yep. Um, and fairies aren't hard to come either because there's a 
One, there's an enemy, I think it's the one that bounces around rooms, called an anti-fairy. If you sprinkle magic dust on it, you get a fairy from that. So, yeah. if you know what you're doing, yeah, you, you can definitely get through this game pretty easily. Especially with all of these these little um, little things that make the game easier. Um, and that's on top of the, the power-ups that were introduced in the uh, DX version. Because you originally didn't have the option to go to that uh, color dungeon that gave you a tunic. Yeah, did you choose blue or red? Uh, so the first time I played the game, I chose blue because I was getting my butt kicked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, this time I chose to go with red because that's what everyone on the internet seems to do, and I wanted to be one of the cool kids. And also, I already played it with blue, and red's a better color than blue anyway, so... Um, <clears throat> hey, good news, Glenn. Mm -hmm. You did it. You're cool now. Good to know. <laughs> I, I don't believe that for a second but um, yeah so I, I went with the red what about you I did blue and because I knew I wasn't going to take the time and look for all the heart pieces so I just wanted to make sure I was covered yeah and the, uh, the sword upgrade in this game takes forever to get so I think that's part of the reason why getting the uh, getting the red tunic helps Gotcha. Is because you it you have to really work for the sword upgrade. I don't think I had it until like right before I started the eighth dungeon, which is the last one. Mm -hmm. Which you know I I don't remember it taking that long um, <laughs> in the Game Boy game. Yeah. I remember having that like around dungeon six or seven. So I don't know why there was there are more shells in this game. That's like the kind of like the gold scatola. Yes. Uh, tokens for this game, which I think this is actually the first game to introduce like a, a side collectible. Gotcha. To Zelda game, but yeah, so they actually made it harder to get the sword, but more stuff to do, a little more replayability, I suppose. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I want to mention about the controls, this is something a lot of people have talked about, is uh, that you can only move in eight directions, despite having to, having to use the analog stick, not being able to use the D-pad. What do you think True. of that? Man, that really threw me for a loop at first because it looked very, very sudden anytime he would change directions. Yeah, there so, was no interpolation. Yeah, no, uh, another way to say that would be no tweening. Oh uh, uh, yeah, that's good. That's an, uh, that's the animator way. Sorry. Computer yeah. scientist versus artist <laughs> terminology. Yeah, tweening is pretty interesting. Like, I don't know many hand-drawn shows, but I heard like The Simpsons mm -hmm. uh, that whoever their famous main artists were, they would draw the keyframes, which is like where the action's taking place or uh, poses that they wanted their characters to strike, and then they'd hand it off to the interns to do the tweening, which would be drawing everything in between those keyframes. Yeah, and that's where the name comes from. It's in between ink. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so without that, Link's movement felt pretty abrupt, and uh, I got used to it, I think. Just playing that game without playing other games, I got used to it. But I think it's always going to be weird to go back to. Yeah, um, I think it's weird just not being able to move in any direction. And I think the reason they did that was... This is just a conspiracy theory of mine. All but right. I think what happened was they probably were originally going to let you move in 360 degrees. And then they realized that because of the way the game's physics only intended you to move in eight directions, you can 
they probably found out, oh, you can jump over this gap you weren't meant to if you cut the angle just right. True. So I'm thinking that may have been like a last minute change to keep the player from breaking a lot of the game's challenges. Yeah, it probably was. I still felt like I was able to go diagonally over some places that I maybe should. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I feel like I got to do some stuff way before I I was supposed to, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that just, that just shows how, what, how good of gamers we are. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, another thing I'm going to defer to you on Glenn is the dungeon builder, because like I've said, four or five times in this podcast it didn't interest me i didn't take the time yeah. to do this i didn't do that dungeon builder is one of those things um I, for some reason it didn't appeal to me to build a challenge for myself to overcome um so <clears throat> it's a nice little distraction yeah that's 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 my one sentence review it's a nice little distraction but man do they really put like a lot of emphasis on it because, like, they treat those dungeon tiles like they're precious. Because I remember yeah. there's there's a... They changed, like, the Rapids minigame from the original so mm-hmm. that there's, like, multiple modes in it now. And it's, it's a lot more... Um, it's a lot more interesting to play now than the original. Mm-hmm. And so there's, like, a time attack mode where you try to get to the end as fast as possible. And I could tell just by sort of, like, where... The, how the guy would say different things for different times... That's like, okay, there's going to be a prize for doing this in under 30 seconds. And yeah. so I spent like a good uh, 30, 40 minutes trying to trying to perfect my technique uh, and going, okay, I need to aim diagonally here and I need to use the hook shot here and stuff like that. You know, I, I, was, I was really analyzing how I was doing it. And uh, the prize you get is a gosh darn dungeon tile. And just before, <laughs> like, just before the podcast, because uh, I beat this game like, almost a month ago it's been like two or three weeks since i've played it um i was going back and i did the claw game and i got the final um little statuette thing little figurine and mm-hmm. what you get for getting all the figurines a dungeon tile <laughs> and so they they treat these you know um and i've seen online i haven't done this but when you catch the largest fish in the game you don't get a heart piece you get a dungeon tile so these dungeon tiles, they're like, these are the most important things in this game, and it's not that interesting. Um, it's it's fun, certainly, and I recommend you go about halfway through it to get, like, the fairy bottle and the heart piece and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, on its on its own, it's, you know, they're, they're, I'm not going to say that it's boring or anything like that. Well, yeah, I, I had some fun with it, but it's it's one of those things that, yeah, you're not going to sit down and want to do this for hours on end. You know, as soon as I got that, that bottle, um, I was like, okay, bye, Dompe. Yep. I would Next be... time I see you, you're going to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, you know, if, if I never see you again, it's, it'll be too soon. <laughs> I would not be surprised at all if, former IGN employee Jose Otero had anything to do with this mode because he was talking about a Zelda maker a lot on Nintendo Voice Chat podcast as being one of the things he wanted to see Nintendo do after Mario Maker. Then getting hired at Nintendo, I'm sure he had some conversations about that. Uh, it eventually got up to Miyamoto asking Aonuma to create a Mario Maker-like experience in Zelda, so he added this dungeon builder mode to Link's Awakening. 
which I feel like is a huge compromise because there's no online functionality. There's no sharing levels with your friends well, unless you, you actually physically can, do it. Yeah, with a, an amiibo. Yes, which is humongously gimped as a mode for sharing. Uh, and you're you're not making your own rooms. You're just remixing rooms. Yeah. And let me tell but, you, you're going to be using some rooms more than others. Because yeah. I, I realized by the end of it, it's like, okay, all I'm doing is prioritizing rooms that don't have enemies and have treasure in them. <laughs> <laughs> but the ratio to people who want to make levels compared to the amount of people that want to play levels is really in favor of the players. And I think that Nintendo could have just looked at their data for Mario Maker usage and Super Mario Maker 2 usage and known that that would have been the case that uh, not as many people would have been interested in creating their own dungeons. Yeah, so Dungeon Builder, I think, just it gets too much focus. with like there, There's a lot of a lot of implicit kind of pressure to try to guide the player towards doing this a lot. And yeah, it, just, yeah. it, it doesn't really hold up enough to do that, so it's fine. Also, if you watch Game Explain, you know that you really should quit after you get the bottle. Because <laughs> apparently like you don't get much of a reward for um, completing all of the challenges. And to be fair, you know, some of the challenges, there is kind of like a weird sort of Tetris effect with it, so you kind of do. I You can get into it. It is kind of fun for a while, but again, yeah, you're not going to want to do this for, you know, all the way through to the end. So they did another golden poop pile. Um, well, according to, I think it was Derek uh, on Game Explain, the golden poop was a better reward. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. But yeah, one one last thing change that I do not think was an improvement regarding exploration is the map. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they really screwed up the map in this game. Um, well, okay, let, let me let me pump the brakes. There's a lot to love about the map because you can place markers and stuff. Um, so if you you find a heart piece and you can't get it yet, you can just leave a little heart shaped marker on your map. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not talking about that. That is good. Okay, so overall the map is better than it was before, but there's one aspect of it that they absolutely ruined, and that's that the map originally was filled in screen by screen. So it was only filled in when you got to the screen that, you know, uh, that map tile. And they changed it so that it fills in the entire region. So if you, what were some of the regions? Um, Like Tarm Ruins, I think was the name of one of them. So if you reach Tarm Ruins, the entire map fills in for that. So when you open yep. the map screen, you can see everything on the map. And I think that, like, once you start getting to the mountains, you climb the mountain, you can see everything on the mountain. So you can even see the dungeon that's just, just this huge tower. And that really bothered me because you'll have the entire map revealed long before the end of the game. Yeah. And that's one of the strengths of the map in the original game is that there are these places that are inaccessible and that part of the map is hidden for the almost the entire game. And it just it starts like bugging you. It bugs the heck out of you. And it's like, okay, there's got to be something really cool there. I mm-hmm. really want to fill that space on the map so I know what's there. I, I really That really motivated me to try to get further in the game and to explore more of the map. Because it's like, okay, now I get to go to this place and see what this is. And they, they took that <laughs> they, they took that away from me. 
Because now it's like, oh, there's a big tower there, or oh, there's a, you know, there's a lake there. And... All right, so how about them graphics? I question a lot of things that Nintendo did with this remake, but I think one thing they hit it out of the park were the visuals and just making an amazing art style and very close attention to detail on everything that they did. Obviously, this not only had to be taken from flat 2D, but to 3D and HD, and they gave it a very nice toy-like visual style on top of that. So I I think that even helped with kind of the jagged eight-direction movement. It's like, okay, he's a toy. So it's part of the style, and it's kind of endearing. So the only thing that they fumbled on was the frame rate when you're leaving like a, an interior going into the overworld, something like that. So that was kind of jarring, but uh, forgivable. And who knows, maybe something they'll even patch. What did you think about the graphics? Um, I'm a little bit more lukewarm on them. Uh, the visual style... Okay, let me start with the positives. I like the fact that it looks like the original Game Boy graphics, but made in 3D. I do like yeah. the fact that they attempted to preserve um, that... Uh, sort of retro style. Um, I've, I've heard, again, going back to Arlo, I've heard some criticism was like, well, why didn't they try to make it look more like the official art? Because, you know, this was clearly inspired by a limitation. Huh. Uh, but, you know, because if you look at, like, how Link is portrayed in-game and, like, the cutscenes and stuff, he looks uh, more like the actual official art. Um, well, which the, I, I think there's is a storyline reason but, for that, right? Huh? There's a storyline reason for that, right? Like the, uh, I don't want to necessarily spoil, but maybe what you're seeing in the opening cinematic is different than what you're seeing hmm. in the gameplay? Um, well, in the original Game Boy game, there were like three art styles. There was um, the one that looked like the official art, then there was the game in-game art, and then while you were playing the game, you could get like these photo ops, which are not in this version. Hmm. Um, that was only in the DX version that used like the Game Boy printer and stuff, and that was weird. But that art style looks kind of like a blend between the two, where it's kind of like a chibi version, but it's far more detailed than the like the overworld graphics. Um, though I I've never heard anyone mention that that is a possibility that the weird art style is um, tied to the game's uh, setting narrative. Yeah. narrative. Um, but, uh, I do like, but that's beside the point. What, what I'm trying to say is I do like the fact that it, it does basically look like the Game Boy graphics just made into three dimensions. I think that was a cool idea. That said, I'm not really a huge fan of the plasticky look. Hmm. Um, it just, when I first saw it, it I, I mentioned this, I want to say in like our E3 discussion, but... It looked kind of like one of those high-quality wall prints or something you would get from um, a, a third-party um, fan merch source. Okay. Um, so it, it had this weird sort of uncanny, not entirely official Nintendo. And in-game, um, my gosh, the lighting is harsh. Like, it, it hmm. looks like it's understage lighting, and it I don't, I don't think that looks great. Like, I think the lighting is kind of... Uh, kind of overblown. Frame rate, definitely an issue. Um, even for someone like me, who um, I, I have spent hours in games that I could only get running back before I had a, a decent graphics card. 
there were games that I could only at best get them running at like 25 frames per second. And I, you know, I was happy yeah. just to have it running. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than that, yeah, the the frame rate is distracting. You know, the thing is, like, I'm okay with a steady, like, a steady low frame rate I've seen. Yeah. It's when it fluctuates constantly that it gets to me. Yeah, takes you out of the experience. Yeah. Um, so they should have just capped it to, like, 30 or something. And from what I understand, it has something to do with, like, a memory leak or something. And that's... Memory leaks are really bad. Right. Yeah, that's that's like one of those things that when you find out about it and um, and you're a game developer, it's like no, stop everything, hunt that down, and figure out what's causing it. Because yep. you know if a memory leak, if that goes on long enough, it'll crash your game. That's why Donkey Kong sixty four needed to have the expansion pack. Mm. Um, is because it had a memory leak and it would crash after like an hour of. <laughs> continuously running because what that basically means is that memory is being taken up by stuff but the game's not keeping track of what's taking up that memory and so it just runs out of memory at one point because it doesn't know where it's going what was the expansion pack just ram yeah it's just ram it just doubled the systems ram interesting yeah and i should probably do like an article on that on how like game consoles everything's a lot more locked in now than it used to be yeah um but yeah, so frame rate's an issue. And lastly, I want to say, my gosh, that depth of field effect is annoying. Really? Like, I hated that. Uh, I found that really, really, like, I learned to ignore it after a while. But when I first boot up the game, it's just like, oh, oh, well, gosh. Well. <laughs> you probably haven't gotten a soft spot from it by using tilt, tilt shift on all your Instagram pictures, have you? Oh, yeah, Instagram exists. <laughs> well, as we already established earlier in the episode, you're the programmer and I'm the artist, so all my opinions on the presentation mean more than yours, right? Well, I mean, you know, the the memory leak. I, did, did you even know what a memory <laughs> leak was before I told you? <laughs> anyway, what do we need to know about the music, sir? I did my thesis on computer graphics topics. I think I know about game visuals. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what was the question? What do we need to know about the music in this game? Um, okay, so again, the music, I'm kind of torn on it because it's one of those things where... and Okay, first of all, let's just talk about this music. The music in this game is kind of experimental for a Nintendo game because it's, it's got this... It's, got, it's very eclectic. You, you're having, like, um, orchestral pieces next to, like... Um, uh, you know, more small band music, and then there's mm -hmm. they're like incorporating elements of the original Game Boy music. So you have like the Game Boy chip music in places, and it's just it's really um, it's really weird seeing Nintendo do something like that because it's almost like listening to an OC remix album. But this is a weird game, right? If I'm gonna do that anywhere, it should be this. And really excellent strange. point, yes. And yeah. if they're going to do weird stuff with the music, this is the game, to, a Zelda game to do it in. Um, so, first of all, that's very interesting. Um, but, like, my, my opinion of the music is all the pieces I didn't care for are now so much better. They're, like, really, really good now. And all the pieces I really, really liked from the original are worse. So, the overall theme... And it's it's not significantly worse, but it is 
I don't think it, it's a substantial improvement if it is an improvement, but like the the woods theme, you know, the forest that you go into really early on, mm-hmm. uh, just sounds way too mellow now. Because originally it had kind of this sort of bassy kind of thing going on where it, it sounded almost like the uh, the jungle theme from the uh, original Metal Gear. So it you know it had kind of kind of this weird sort of sneaking around sound to it, yeah. Um, that I really liked, and now it, it just feels too subdued. And Tall Tall Mountain, I I, I expected it to be a bit bigger because it's kind of mm-hmm. like this is the epic you know the, these are the last areas in the game. This is your epic conclusion, and it didn't. I don't know it. So much of it is that it's like it's not. Bad. The, the the remix music and and let me make something clear. Most of the compositions in this game are actually really really good, like the actual compositions, like the music itself, independent of the arrangement. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of the times it's just like I expected it to have more oomph. A lot of these songs, and that's that's where it kind of fell short. Is a lot of the songs that I really liked. It's like I expected it to be bigger when I heard it in this game, and it, it wasn't. Um, also, someone really likes the recorder. <laughs> someone who worked on this game really likes the recorder. Um, which, hey, you know, it, it works for this game, I think. I, I, I do like the fact that they use rec- the recorder a lot in this game, because I feel like it does add something unique to this game. But, yeah, um, just independent of that, going back to the compositions... A lot of this music I actually like better than what we typically hear from Zelda music. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think I like the overworld music in this game better than the actual, you know, Zelda overture, which the it uses elements of the Zelda typical Zelda overworld theme. But um, I think I I prefer like the directions that this one goes better in this game, and the ending theme, like the credits theme. My gosh, that may be my favorite song in Zelda now after listening to it in this game. Nice. That's awesome. Because it's like, right. oh my gosh, why why doesn't Zelda music have this kind of high adventure energy more often? It... <laughs> so, Scott, uh, one, one of the, the obvious questions after seeing this uh, game is, uh, what, what Zelda game would we like to see get the remake treatment like this next? Well, I wouldn't like to see it get this exact treatment where they keep the gameplay one-to-one, but I do like that they took kind of an older, less accessible Zelda game and brought it into the current era. And I'd like them to do that with Legend of Zelda 2, which is a game that's very hard to go back to, quite a pain to play, and almost impossible to beat without cheesing your save states. But if they could redo the story and the content of Zelda 2 in a way that's fun to play in 2020 or 2021, I would absolutely love that. And uh, I would feel like, okay, maybe I have played and beat every Zelda game without necessarily having to go back and play that original one. That is um, that is not a choice I expected, but yeah, that's that's a very good point. I That, that is a game I'd like to see them uh, attempt to. Um <clears throat> Me personally, I I would like to see this is the obvious choice, but I'd like to see the Oracle games done because you know they're mm-hmm. they're basic. I think they're built on the same engine, um, and 
they this was so, Grezzo, right? So Grezzo could easily move on to the Oracle games. Yeah, and they they suffer from a lot of the same issues because they're basically just a continuation of the the Game Boy style. Mm-hmm. So I would I would like to see those remade, and I would like to see them bundled together on one card. Maybe you could buy them separately digitally, but you know, yeah. sixty bucks you get two full fledged Zelda adventures uh, in this style. That'd be a great deal, and those are games that do deserve more attention, and people aren't necessarily talking about them. The remakes that I hear being requested are like, give us a Zelda HD collection with Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword and Wind Waker all for the Switch. It's like, come on, we, we just got those games. People have played Twilight Princess twice in the last decade. We don't need to see that game again for a while. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, going back, and, and Capcom helped make the... Oracle games, it'd be great to see those efforts resurface in the modern day. Yep. Yeah, so having said all that, just kind of our final thoughts on Link's Awakening. For me, I feel like it's a very decent Zelda game, which saw a lot of improvements, but also had some compromises coming over onto Switch. Uh, It's not necessarily always going to stay that way. Like I mentioned earlier, they could work on a patch, although it's kind of weird just watching which games Nintendo will update, which ones they'll give DLC to, and which ones they'll completely ignore, like Super Mario Party. So this could be the final version of Link's Awakening, or the frame rate stuff could completely get taken out, and the uh, tilt shift could become an option in the menu. We'll have to see. Yeah. Um... I, I would definitely say this is the definitive edition of um, Link's Awakening. I think this is the best version of the game uh, to um, to play. Having said that, um, at $60, I think it is overpriced. I'm glad we waited until the very end for price to come up, because sometimes that's all people will talk about in regards to Link's Awakening. But yeah, especially since you can play the original for five dollars, as we mentioned before. So yeah, don't entirely wait till the end. But yeah, sixty. This is I would say I'd, I'd be comfortable playing forty dollars, and because I still have uh, Best Buy um, Gamer unlocked or whatever, because <laughs> um, I got mine like right before they canceled it. That's awesome. I tried to renew. I was two days late after they canceled the program. But yeah, yeah, so you got yours for 48 bucks? Yeah, I got mine for 48 bucks. So I don't feel completely ripped off. But still, that yep. was $8 more than I think it, the game is worth. Sure. I didn't mind too much. Like, I never play pay full price for games. Either I'm using someone else's Gamers Club Unlocked or getting them for $50 at Walmart or Amazon's pre order bonus or stuff like that. If you're paying full price $60 for. For all your games, you might just not be looking hard enough. But I feel like a lot of effort warranted that. I mean, the game existed on Game Boy, but they completely had to redo the graphics. They completely had to redo the controls. They, I'm sure they didn't use any code from the Game Boy game. Well, no, because uh, Game Boy games were written in assembly, and assembly is processor-specific. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. unless they have like a, a Game Boy processor in the Switch, that's a no-go. So the only areas they really got to turn their brains off were the story and the items and the puzzles, which, to be fair, are pretty much copied and pasted from Zelda game to Zelda game to Zelda game. Well, I mean, the story is, as we mentioned, pretty unique in this one, but other than that, yeah. And, I, like, the localization, I, I forgot to mention this, the localization, I think, is almost one-for-one 
what it was yeah uh, before but yeah so it's it, if I had to give it you know my review score I would say this is probably a like it a lot maybe a love it but a mm-hmm. you know price is not uh, it, it's overpriced yeah I'd probably give it a B so B there you but go not for budget right <laughs> right <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. There's our thoughts on Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. I do think it's cool that this game was announced in like March in a random Nintendo Direct, and we're playing it this soon. So I love it when Nintendo does stuff like that. Yeah, and it was nice going back to the old Zelda formula uh, for for a little bit. Um, it was. You know, it, yep. it's it's a good kind of palate cleanser from Breath of the Wild uh, to kind of hold us over till Breath of the Wild two. So I think that. That probably will make me a little bit nicer to Breath of the Wild too, to be honest. That I've had a, a chance to go back and experience traditional Zelda again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Breath of the Wild too, and I'm looking forward to our next podcast. So thank yeah. you, Glenn, for outlining this, putting it together, and thank you to the listener for lending us some of your time. And please do lend us some of your thoughts in the comments section. We'd love to hear from whoever whoever gets this <laughs> whoever's out there whoever's still yeah. listening to two Bunning crew in uh, 2019 thanks for listening thanks for being a part of the crew i'm scott i'm glenn see you next time bye everybody bye